0: at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features.
1: Hello, and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. So Happy New Year, it's 2022, and we are starting off the year with a special Thursday episode. Verge Transportation Editor Andy Hawkins had a chance to speak with United States Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg. Andy's here, how's it going?
2: It's going good, how are you?
1: I'm all right, so what did you and Secretary Pete talk about?
2: They reached out to us, actually, about setting this up because they wanted to talk about uh, these new principles of innovation that they were introducing as part of CES. But obviously, I had a lot more that I wanted to talk about than just innovation. I wanted to talk about the infrastructure bill that they just passed a, a few months ago. I wanted to talk about autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles and EV charging infrastructure. I wanted to talk about federal vehicle safety laws and ways to update those to better reflect sort of the changing dynamic in the in the auto space. And of course, I also wanted to talk about Tesla because who doesn't want to talk about Tesla these days?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's Tesla has a famously spiky relationship with the regulators. So I think there's probably a lot there. But I, I just want to ask you, do you think you got a good answer about charging networks? Because it is the question whenever we do EVs on the show that we get from the audience. I would love to buy a car with a battery. I have no idea how to charge it.
2: I think he definitely had uh, a little bit to pat himself on the back about because they did approve $7 billion for EV charging as part of this infrastructure law. So that is certainly a a significant amount of money that will be spent. Um, But that doesn't clean up a lot of the problems that exist today, such as sort of the spotty coverage, the lack of consistency between different companies. And sort of the different ways that the car companies that are making the EVs are approaching sort of all of these challenges. So while he was able to sort of have a little bit to brag about, I also think that there's still a lot to be said and a lot that needs to be done. Uh, And so a lot will depend on how they spend that money, I think, in the next few years that they've approved.
1: And then the other big topic that always comes up when you and I talk about self-driving, it's a dream. We see a lot of demos. We talk to a lot of CEOs on this show about the future of the car and whether it will have steering wheels. The regulatory frameworks for this stuff are far from being in place. Do you think he had a good answer there?
2: yeah so i really pushed him about you know some specifics that i think need to be addressed that i've heard discussed uh, amongst experts and people that are working on this technology such as ways to update you know safety laws so to better reflect the fact that you know there's not a person driving the car anymore but the car itself is the driver and i think he had some thoughtful things to say about that but he's also i think expressed some frustration at the pace that things change within government and i think that that's you know, something that he's going to have to grapple with sort of in his perch at DOT, uh, because these laws, they, they don't get switched around overnight. They take years to adapt. And uh, the technology is just moving much faster than that pace. So it's going to be a real challenge, I think, for them.
1: All right. Well, this conversation is great. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Here's Verge Transportation Editor Andy Hawkins with Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg. Here we go.
2: Secretary Pete Buttigieg, welcome to Decoder. I wanted to start by asking you about these innovation principles that you're announcing at CES. What are they? Why do you think they're important? And why should people care about what a government agency's innovation principles are?
0: You can't separate transportation from innovation. And the idea here is to make sure that as our department is making decisions about the the future of transportation, that that we've kind of codified or put to paper the principles that are going to guide us. Uh, You know, folks in our department have been working on innovation since the department was created. Uh, And some of these things are principles that I think have been unspoken for a very long time. But I think it's very important for us to take step back and take stock about what matters to us most when it comes to innovation. Because otherwise, there's always a risk of it uh, being confused with technology. They're not the same thing. Or becoming an end in itself, which is also something we're we're trying to avoid. Which is why the very first principle we've laid out is that – Innovation is supposed to serve public policy priorities, or at least our involvement in innovation is supposed to support public policy priorities. So the things we care about, helping people get to where they need to be, making sure that people live in a way that is prosperous on equitable terms, dealing with the climate crisis, supporting good paying American jobs. These are things we care about uh, in general. So it follows that these should be some of the things that guide our choices when we're getting involved in in the innovation space. Another really important one for us is competitiveness for America in the 21st century. Uh, We are at a crossroads really in terms of American leadership A lot of times that's talked about in geopolitical terms, but it's just as true in terms of of transportation, technology, and innovation. Another one is about our support for workers. This is not about technology that comes at the expense of, of workers, but rather how can we empower workers, make workers more effective, more successful, more uh, even more productive in, in ways that, that benefit the economy as a whole. Uh, we have a principle in here about allowing experimentation and learning from failure. This is so elemental in the tech space that it, it, it might be questioned why we would even put it down, but it can be a little bit foreign in the government space, right, where, where failure is often uh, not tolerated, even though it's, it's clearly... Uh, in the experimental context, a necessary part of how innovation happens. We've got a principle that lays out how important collaboration is. The fact that it's not just the public sector, just the private sector, or just the academic sector that drives innovation, but how they relate to each other. And and lastly, but importantly, being ready to adapt, being ready to be flexible and and evolve. Uh, Again, not something that is second nature, especially for a regulatory agency, which is a big part of what DOT does, but obviously something we got to do because the technologies are literally changing faster than we can rewrite some of our own uh, plans and rules around them.
2: So I definitely want to get to what you just said because I think that that's, that that last part I think is really really important but before we do that I wanted to ask you about what are some of the examples of ways that you feel like for instance the recently passed infrastructure law will help foster innovation because Last I checked, there's, there's not a lot of wiggle room when it comes to filling potholes or, or building bridges or updating sewer systems. Can you sort of give us some, some examples of ways you think that these innovation principles will
0: dovetail with the new infrastructure law? One definite example is the uh, the deployment of a nationwide network of electric vehicle chargers. And it's a good example of some of the play in what exactly the role of government is. Right. So we don't need to invent a new electric vehicle charger. The private sector has come up with a lot of versions of it. We don't even need to deploy them ourselves single handedly in a network that's owned and operated by the government. Again, the private sector is there for that. But we have a very important role to play in terms of making sure that uh, a network is laid out across this country for everybody, that it's not just in the most automatically, immediately profitable places, but in the places that collectively add up to uh, there being no range anxiety for any American anywhere weighing whether to buy an electric vehicle. Uh, That means filling in for market failures. It means accelerating market processes. It means using the purchasing power and guidelines that that are available to the federal government to encourage made in America components and and facilities uh, to to thrive in, in the EV charging space. It's a great example of where you need this kind of handshake between public and private, not in order to make sure that a technology exists, But in order to help make sure that the way that technology unfolds is the most beneficial to the American people.
2: Will this involve pressuring private companies to put EV chargers in places that may not uh, result in the the biggest financial return from them necessarily, but will help sort of the more equitable distribution of chargers so that you can see uh, a more sort of robust infrastructure overall?
0: I think when, when you want a company to do something that's not in their shareholder interest, there, there's gotta be more to the picture than than pressure. And that's why this is about using dollars, uh, using billions of, of dollars to achieve that outcome. But we're also not gonna just use those dollars to incentivize something that would have happened anyway, to, to pad profitabilities that would exist. So yes, it's about smoothing that picture, right? I mean, right now, you can make a buck putting a, an electric vehicle charger in a lot of places in the US, but that might not be the places where it's gonna make the biggest difference in terms of our development into an EV country or in terms of our public policy goals that include making sure low-income people, who, by the way, uh, provided they can afford an EV, would be those who would benefit the most because they can, they can have the fuel savings. And it's a different pattern of use than, than you might expect. Rural residents are often left out of a lot of technology developments, right? But with EVs, actually, because rural residents are more likely to live in a single-family home, they're more likely to have at least part of the charging issue solved because a plug in your wall at home uh, is how you can charge your car. That's actually less available to city residents. There are some other things that are harder for rural residents compared to city residents, like the the, the long distances they have to cover. So again, it's an example of us uh, figuring out how we can use our policy tools to make sure there's a good public outcome, even while there's a lot of market activity. And then over time, uh, you know, you, you want to, as the saying goes, organize yourself out of a job. We, we want to get to where less and less policy intervention is needed for the good outcome to happen. Now, The EV charging network is one example, right? There are others where we do have a role in basic research. You mentioned, uh, you know, there's only so many ways you can fill in a pothole. But actually, uh, and I have a bit of an obsession about this, there's a lot we could be doing to drive adoption of pavement that lasts longer. But there's not a lot of market incentives or, frankly, even policy incentives for the people who make these choices day to day, like mayors or state DOTs, to pay a premium for an asphalt that's going to last 13 years instead of nine in a Midwestern winter. Doing the basic research on that is something we should be funding federally because it probably won't happen otherwise.
2: I asked you about potholes because I knew you were going to butt actually <laughs> me on it, so I set you up for that. But th- thank you for taking the bait. I am aware that there are sort of new technologies and innovations out there when it comes to that kind of stuff, so that is really interesting. Just going back to to the EV charging question, really quick: the bipartisan infrastructure deal will provide seven billion dollars for for charging infrastructure, um, but the other tax credits and, and and consumer incentives are still tied up with the Build Back Better plan, which is in limbo right now. Um, are you making plans? At your level, at the DOT level, to come up with some other way to speed the transition from gas powered vehicles to EVs, assuming that we won't get those improved uh, customer
0: incentives? Well, I think three things are really going to drive adoption. One is the charging support that, that we just talked about. The second is the incentives that we're going to continue a commitment to try to deliver. Uh, I hope through the Build Back Better framework, uh, whatever the vehicle, it's it's a, an important public policy. And then third, the things that will happen anyway in in the market. The, the worry, of course, is that the, the market forces won't get there in time for us to meet our climate goals. That's why we've got to pour some accelerant on it. Uh, now, I, I should say, and, and I've noticed there's, there's a little, been a little bit of confusion almost to the point of misinformation about this in the press, uh, electric vehicles are, are increasingly moving toward a price point that, that's available to more and more Americans. So uh, a widely cited figure is the $55,000 average price. But like many averages, there can be some mischief in those statistics because you got a lot of very high-end luxury vehicles, right? You look at some of these pickup trucks coming onto the market, they start around $40,000. Still out of reach for a lot of people, but more affordable than uh, than anything in this space would have been a few years ago. Our task is to make it more affordable more quickly for more people, which is why we've proposed this incentive that, that would uh, take more than $10,000 off of that price tag, move it into the high 20s. Then you got way more Americans who would be able to afford uh, these vehicles and reap the, the fuel savings that come with them. So we're not going to let go of this policy goal of reducing the upfront cost to electric vehicles, even while we pursue other things that are going to make them easier to adopt.
2: Yeah, it's. I think that that's a really interesting point, because I think we have seen the president has tested out the electric Hummer, for example, and he's tested out the electric uh, Ford F-150. Those are sort of presented as being the, you know, sort of the, the tip of the spear, as we're going to see it to more, more adoption. But if you sort of pull the camera back a little bit even more, there is sort of an issue of car dependency in the United States and sort of the ways that that drives increases in carbon emissions, uh, the increase amongst Uh, pedestrians of road fatalities, a real troubling increase that we've seen over the last year. How can you use your regulatory authority, your uh, position, to pressure states to do something more intensely about reducing car dependency? Because we hear a lot about electric vehicles and the the importance of electric vehicles, but we don't hear as much about sort of the broader problems that are associated with car dependency in the U.S.
0: Well, I think what's happened is our our lives in so many ways are set up to revolve around our use of cars. And uh, our work starts from the principle that, that every means of transportation, including cars, should revolve around everyday life uh, and what's good for people, not the other way around. And so that is a challenge. Uh, within the automotive space, we're very excited about the developments that are happening, uh, about it becoming cleaner through electrification, smarter through automation. But that's only one of many ways to get around. And I often say that you should be able to have options to get to where you're going without having to drag two tons of metal with you in order to get there. That's why you see in this bipartisan infrastructure law history's largest ever federal investment in public transit to create those kinds of options for people and to get out of this idea that, that transit is something you're stuck with if you don't have a car and rather make it a means of choice. It's already true in many of our biggest cities, but we could do a lot more uh, to make that the case and to make that equally true of bus or bus-like transit as it is of subway or train-like transit. Uh, then you have making sure that it is safer and more convenient to get around on foot, encouraging active transportation, bicycle mobility, which begins with safety and making sure that, uh, that people feel and are safe when they're getting around uh, with those modes. Look, some of this is about the what we think of as the transportation piece. Some of this is about city planning and urban design. And that's one of the reasons why we can't separate transportation policy from housing policy and land use policy. And that's something else that that we're committed to breaking down silos around because, uh, you know, we we have designed everything down to the way our neighborhoods and cities unfold in a way that almost pushes us into this car dependency when we really could have a more balanced uh, outlook. And a lot of forward thinking communities, uh, cities, states are planning that way already.
2: So you're releasing these innovation guidelines, uh, these innovation principles, and in some ways they reminded me a little bit of the voluntary guidelines that were released for automated vehicles under the Obama administration. Sort of a a list of broad policies and principles that the government would like to see private companies adopt as they move more toward this technological innovation, self-driving cars. That's sort of one element of what the government can do to incentivize uh, this this in- innovation in the private sector. But I'm also wondering sort of the other hand, which is the enforcement angle, because you do see companies like Tesla that are really pushing the envelope on auto safety and uh, having its customers test out beta software. I'm wondering if you feel that there's more that DOT and NHTSA and other government agencies should be doing to ensure that companies aren't really crossing the line when it comes to pushing innovation to a point where things are starting to get unsafe.
0: Yeah, look, the, the innovation agenda is the the, the bleeding edge of, of what we're doing. The core of what we're doing as an agency is safety. So when I talk about how technology and innovation should serve our public policy priorities, a good example of that is our, our core mission around safety. And that's not just about being excited about new things emerging that could be beneficial, but also we have a fundamental responsibility uh, on the regulatory side. And you are going to continue to see us take steps. By the way, in the long run, this is to the benefit of industry, uh, you know, every uh, in the same way that obviously for the long run, food service and restaurants are better off because uh, America chose to establish public health regulations so you didn't have to worry about food poisoning every time you 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 ate outside of your home, or for that matter, inside your home. Uh, we need to make sure that people who are weighing how to navigate a world of automated vehicles know that there is some baseline of safety that's been established by regulation. Now, the the challenge for us, of course, is to adapt our framework for regulating these things in ways we've never had to. There's a sort of unofficial division of labor when it comes to vehicles and and vehicle safety, which is that, and I'm simplifying a little bit, but I think this is a fair way to, to say it, that states regulate drivers and we, the federal government, regulate cars. So what are you supposed to do when the car is the driver? That's something that we're really just at the outset of, uh, of managing. In a much narrower sense, uh, even right now, we, we've just got to re-reg, uh, you know, rewrite some of our regulations on what should be true in terms of just the seat or seat belt uh, that refer to a quote-unquote driver's seat. But that can take uh, when, such a
2: long time. You know, Tweaking things like the photo, Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards is just a multi-year process, as we've seen in the past. That doesn't seem to really account for the pace at which this technology is innovating. I mean, you're talking about, you know, GM is announcing today that they're going to start selling self-driving cars to customers by the middle part of the decade. You know, we don't even have vision tests for these cars yet. Do we need something like that, do you think? Like we test driver's eyesight. Should we be testing the perception software of these cars as well?
0: Potentially. And, and these are exactly the kinds of things we, we need to really move more quickly uh, as, a, as a government to, to deal with, because we can't let the technology keep running out ahead of uh, of our policy, or else uh, one of two things will happen. Either it emerges and it's not safe, or it's ready to emerge, but it's held back because we haven't gotten around to finding ways to show that it's safe or make sure that it's safe. Both of those outcomes, by the way, are, uh, are, are bad. But also we need to think at a a deeper level than I think we have been. And I I just want to not to pounce on it, but I think your example about vision testing is is, is a good one. There's this idea out there that, you know, we've got to make sure that the vision or kind of optical capabilities of of AVs is as good as as that of a human driver. I don't think that's actually an acceptable standard because human drivers kill about 35,000 people a year. Uh, something we would never tolerate with any kind of new uh, product or or technology. So it's got to be better. And, uh, you know, it's not government's job to decide whether the way to make it better is an even better optical approach or something that it's less dependent on optical or, you know, these are exactly the kinds of things that researchers uh, in the scientific and industry world, uh, not people like me, uh, will need to develop. But what we need to say is, Here's what a safe vehicle looks like. Here's an acceptable standard of safety. And here's what it takes to, to uh, accept that, that these will be on American roads. And we, and the race is on to define those principles and then uh, challenge industry to show that they can meet that standard.
2: And do you think that it also will involve not being afraid to use the recall authority as well? Because as we've seen with software updates being able to be pushed by some of these companies over the air, they can make some of these fixes that you know, potential defects in their vehicles can be fixed through over-the-air software updates, sort of bypassing the traditional recall process. Do you think that that needs to be updated or changed in some way to sort of account for how cars are essentially just smartphones on wheels, to sort of use a, a cliche that has been bandied about? It seems like that potentially presents some, some issues for, for government regulators such
0: as yourself. Yeah, I mean, look, if if a model of a tire has a physical flaw and it, ex- it explodes when it's not supposed to, uh, that obviously triggers a recall due to a physical flaw. Uh, if there is a flaw in a piece of software that could have comparable consequences, we've got to have a way to get ahead of that. And that's, again, something that requires us to build just fundamentally different capabilities than we're used to having. As an agency, but uh, there's no question that we got to be weighing these issues, uh, not not just for for those purposes, but also, of course, in a world where cybersecurity vulnerabilities are becoming more and and more apparent and and more and more troubling. Up to this point, it's really been about hoping private actors will sort of give the government a heads up when, when there's a cyber issue. Uh, we've got to have a more robust way of dealing with these things.
2: You could hope that private companies will give you the heads up. We've also seen companies, and I don't mean to continue to bring up Tesla, but I, I have to because they they do seem to be somewhat of an outlier in the auto industry in the way that Elon Musk thumbs his nose at regulators, whether it's the SEC or NHTSA. And I'm just wondering, sort of, obviously, there's an investigation going on right now into some incidents that have uh, taken place with uh, autopilot crashing into emergency vehicles. But I'm wondering if you think that there needs to be a more broader look at that company, especially considering sort of the sort of unique role that they're playing in the broader transportation sector.
0: Our decisions are based on outcomes, so we will regulate any company based on whether their products are safe. And we are taking steps now with, with NHTSA to make sure that we get the data that is needed about incidents uh, that use some of this driver assistance technology. And I, I don't know, I, I keep saying this till I'm blue in the face. Uh, anything on the market today that, that you can buy, that is a driver assistance technology, not a driver replacement technology. And I don't care what it's called. Uh, and, and we need to make sure that we're, we're crystal clear about that. Even if companies are not, but uh, I would say existing authorities will give us a lot to to work with to keep uh, drivers and passengers safe. Uh, we're going to continue to use those in in every responsible way and look for. More running room where it's needed, uh, but it's you know it's not about uh, singling out any one company for for praise or or for scrutiny. It's about making sure that every single vehicle out there is one that you don't even have to wonder whether it meets a basic sta- standard of safety. We see to it, uh, and that's one less thing for you to think about. So you can uh, worry more about the, the the cool stuff, like which features you'd like, uh, instead of whether it's something that that you want to trust your life and your children's life to.
2: I wanted to ask you a little bit about trust in government. It seems to be at at a low at this point in the country. There's a a feeling that, you know, government's not really working for people. And I I think some of that stems from, you know, uh, the the jobs that some people in government take after they leave uh, public service. A lot of folks that worked at DOT under Obama went on to join tech companies after they left the agency. I'm just wondering whether that kind of revolving door situation hurts the ability of agencies like yours to properly regulate the sector.
0: I mean, there are a lot of uh, ethics rules that, that try to uh, create a level of transparency around any relationship people have, kind of before, during, and after their uh, their time in, in government and in industry. I think that we should always be ready to refine those and, and improve those to make sure that there's no question about uh, what's motivating people making decisions in, in public service. I think at, at its core, the most important factor driving trust in government, up or down, is results. I think people trust government when, uh, when it works for them, and they mistrust government when they witness policy failure. The irony of being a safety agency uh, at our core is that policy successes tend to be quiet, right? I mean, uh, one uh, fiery crash is a lot more visible than 100,000 that didn't happen because we did our job. And uh, what we need to do, and and by the way, that's by design. Uh, Part of me says, as as public servants, I I want us to get more credit for that and and make it clear that that happens. But actually part of why we're here is to worry about that stuff so you don't have to. Uh, But there are other areas where clearly people have not seen policy success, including in transportation, largely as a consequence of the generational disinvestment that's been going on across my lifetime. That's why we're so excited about the bipartisan infrastructure law. It is an opportunity, not a guarantee, to deliver the kinds of quality infrastructural improvements that are going to make people feel better about the country, feel better, I think, about uh, the government that's in charge of delivering it. And that's just one of many areas where I think it's not an exaggeration to say that, that uh, confidence in democracy partly depends on some very nuts and bolts stuff, like whether we can deliver good, efficient, safe, uh, modern ways for people and goods to get around. Just as a last question for you, you and your husband just became parents.
2: Mazel tov to that. Do you think your children will need to have driver's licenses when they get old enough to have one? Because this is something that has come up with, uh, with uh, you know, in the past, you know, a lot of autonomous vehicle proponents would say, oh, our kids are not going to need to have driver's licenses. Now there's some question as to whether or not that was maybe a bit premature. I'm wondering what, what you think about that.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about that just the other day uh, when I was uh, uh, when I was looking at them in in the morning. I I wonder that. I mean, it it was such a thing, right? For anybody my age or older, growing up, it's already a bit less of a thing. If you talk to teenagers now, I think because uh, among other things, ride shares have been so liberating for them. I think that there is a very good chance that that you know certainly my kids born this last summer. You know, fifteen years from now, uh, it'll very much be an optional thing or a specialty thing. Now, that being said, I'm very mindful of the fact that you know, the widespread use of automated cars has been five years away for at least 10 years in, in terms of the conversations that uh, you see happening on, uh, among the more breathless uh, commentators. And so you know, for that to go through some kind of step change, I think does require uh, both policy and technology to evolve in, in a way that's different than it has been. But if electric vehicles are as big a change to use an analogy from aviation, is going from propellers to jet planes, and I think automated vehicles on the ground will be as big a difference as going from air travel to space travel, and it's it's clearly going to happen in a big way uh, in our lifetimes. Trying to game out exactly when, I think that's a little a little harder for any of us to do well.
2: That's where uh, uh, many companies have gotten tripped up in the past is trying to you know accurately predict the future. It seems to be a moving target. But Secretary Pete Buttigieg, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. We really appreciate your time.
0: Thanks for having me on. Good seeing you.
2: Good seeing you too.
1: Thanks again to Secretary Pete Buttigieg for taking the time to talk with Andy today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, we'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like it, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott, It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino, and our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.